Hello and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Big Ideas series. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Gerard Robinson, Executive Director of the Center for Advancing Opportunity, and the editor with Elizabeth English-Smith of the book Education for Liberation, The Politics of Promise and Reform Inside and Beyond America's Prisons, which is the subject of our conversation today. Gerard, welcome to the podcast. Jason, thank you for having me. So for much of your career, including your stints as the Commissioner of Education for the state of Florida and the Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Virginia, you focused on K-12 education. What inspired you to write a book about education in prison? When I was an undergraduate student at Howard University in the late 1980s, I was a volunteer in a program for young men who were in the juvenile justice system. And many of them had challenges with reading and writing, navigating all the social dynamics of just being a young man uh, in America at that time. And so I began to work with adults who were involved in trying to keep these guys from going to prison later. And it was one of the five experiences that made me decide to become a fifth grade school teacher when I graduated from Howard, which you know played a role in me later going into school choice. So the interest in juveniles and justice started in the 80s, but through all my work of working in places like Milwaukee with Dr. Howard Fuller, the Institute for the Transformation of Learning, Florida, Virginia, and other places, I ran into a number of adults who, in fact, had been incarcerated. A lot of them say if they had to do things all over again, they wish they would have had a great education. But I also met people with kids in charter schools or private schools who said, you know what, I was incarcerated, I'm putting my kid in a better school and hope that they will not. So it was a very interesting way of our school choice work that you and I have done for years, aligning with something I believe is just a bigger picture of opportunity. I'm just doing it now with adults who at one point were the children we served. And why is it so important to educate prisoners? I mean, some people might think, oh, okay, you know, well, it's it's a shame the system failed them, but, you know, it's too late, they're too far gone. Why educate them? I'm a big believer in the concept of lifelong learning. I've had a chance to listen to podcasts like yours where they interviewed people in their 50s, 60s, 70s who learned to read for the first time, who then became a role model for their grandchildren or other peers. So I believe that's important. Number two, as a supporter of parental choice, we believe in second and third chances. You know, when I look at a state like California, my home state, and you identify that, you know, nearly 70% of the people aren't reading above the eighth grade level. You know, that's a challenge. And so for me, I want to give people who, frankly, oftentimes do not have a first chance, a second chance to become literate. But I'm very clear that there is a schism within the reform community. Some who say, you know what, they committed the crime, they should do the time. And we shouldn't, you know, for example, give them Pell Grants to go. So I realize these people, particularly women, a lot of them are moms, and that they're going to go back home one day. In fact, 95% of the 2.3 million people who are incarcerated are going to leave prison or are they going to leave incarceration. And they're coming back to our communities. I want them to come to return with stronger literacy skills, whether for education, career, or academic work. And what do we know about the recidivism rates and their relationship to whether somebody received an education in prison or not? We know right now that there are approximately 685,000 people who are going to leave prison or did leave prison in 2019. 
approximately 75% of them are going to return within five years, and a majority of those within the first three years. Now, a 75% return, if it were a financial investment, I'd be a rich guy. When it's a human capital loss, I think we're all poor for it. And so there's research, for example, a colleague of mine who's at the Department of Corrections in Minnesota, Dewey, Dr. Dewey, he's done some work with the American Enterprise Institute and has identified that people who are incarcerated you know, in his state who participate in some type of education level, in fact, reduce their recidivism. We can look at a report from the RAND Corporation, Davis and others identified that people who participated in correctional education programs, 43% likelihood less that they would actually return to prison. But there's also research out of New York prison for women. Women who at least enrolled in one class compared to their peers who did not were less likely to recidivate. Now, I'm not saying that simply taking one class means you'll never return, but you and I both know that there's something about education, and particularly when you have the aha moment, that just begins to make you not only reimagine what life is like once you leave prison, but also while I'm incarcerated, how can I free myself mentally? And so there's research pointing in the right direction, but I'm also aware that there's some scholars who, who question whether it's causation or correlation. Certainly, and that's, you know, causation and correlation is always hard to untangle, but, you know, if we're telling stories, it certainly makes sense that somebody who comes out of prison and they have no additional skills than when they entered it, besides whatever tips and tricks they picked up from other criminals in prison, is likely to engage in the same sort of activity they were engaging in before. But if they come out of prison and they have new skills and they're actually able to provide themselves with honest work to provide money for them and their family, they would be less likely, one would think, to engage in the type of behavior that that landed them in prison in the first place. But your book describes all sorts of obstacles that get in the way of providing prisoners with a high quality education. Obviously, there are we can break it into at least three buckets. There are political obstacles. There's also regulatory obstacles. And, and then there's just the, the obstacles of being in prison itself, the prison environment. And if, if I had one critique of your book, it's that you have a bunch of stories in chapter 10, which is the last chapter before the conclusion. I would have put those at chapter one because it really gives you some incredible perspective on the sorts of challenges that prisoners face in getting an education. Maybe we could start there, talk a little bit about what sort of challenges they faced to getting an education in prison. No, great critique. So let's take the story of Michelle Jones. She spent 22 years in prison in the state of Indiana. When she arrived, she didn't have a high school diploma. She earned a GED while she was inside. She talks about her challenges of just learning how to read and comprehend and then write. So she gets over hurdle one. Number two, she then decides to pursue a bachelor's degree. At that time, she was able to use the Pell Grant. This is, you know, pre-1994 before it was eliminated. And so she was able to earn a BA. But when she was doing research, unlike, you know, you and I, she didn't have access to the Internet. So there's one barrier already in place. They just won't let them have it. So she had to do a lot of primary research going to the depths of the library in her prison and doing, and doing work. Well, guess what? She started writing papers. Her parole officer and professor would send the papers out to different conferences. People read them, said they were great, and said we would love to have her come and present. 
And someone said, well, she can't. Oh, don't worry. If, if it's a financial issue, we'll pick up her hotel costs and transportation. No, she's incarcerated. And they were like, what? Yeah. Someone like this is incarcerated. Yes. Well, she finally moved through that. Today, this coming fall, she'll be a third-year Ph.D. student in history at NYU. And so she talks about her stories of just going through the process, being blocked, because, A, at some point she had access to funds and then she did not. And then we take a look at another story of a gentleman who's in Texas. He was a part of the prison entrepreneurship program. Why did he join? Well, he was pretty clear that when you leave prison, you still have the scarlet letter F for felon. And there are a number of jobs that will simply bar you because you're a felon, independent of your skill set. And he realized that I should probably go ahead and create, you know, my own job. And so he's part of a group called the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. It was started by a group of businessmen and women in Houston. And they basically put these guys, now women, in a program where they learn entrepreneurship skills. They give a, like a Shark Tank pitch at a chance, back Elizabeth and I had a chance to participate. And they graduate with a certificate in entrepreneurship from Baylor University. The recidivism rate for the men who go through that program is 7%. For the rest of the state, it's over 50%. And so, you know, what's worth noting is that a number of the people, I think there are five people, in fact, who wrote an essay for that chapter, three of them actually wrote their chapters while they were incarcerated. Michelle, for example, I didn't meet her until she got out of prison. We were in communication through a middle person. So, yeah, you're right about that. In fact, I'm uh, teaching a course this coming spring at UVA Law School using this book as a foundation, and I'm actually opening class one by opening with chapter 10 in our book, Start Off with the Students. So you are, you're a wise man. Yeah, well, actually, that section by Michelle Jones was, I thought, particularly eye-opening, and I, I want to read just a part of one paragraph where she describes what it's like to try to be a student in prison. And she writes, quote, Normative behaviors such as sharing goods, giving hugs, and waving hello are subject to disciplinary sanctions in most prisons. The noise, interruptions like count times, fire drills, and suspended movement, and constant and often arbitrary changes of bunkmate staff and custody and facility rules produce chaotic experiences. Imagine being in college and struggling with no paper clips, staplers, rubber bands, or three-ring binders. Are you wondering how we hold ourselves or anything together? It's... Those are challenges that you don't even, you take for granted if you're on the outside. But certainly these are real obstacles to learning. Real obstacles. And at times you had correctional staff, some who were very supportive, but you had other correctional staff who weren't supportive, who at times would raise barriers like, yep, don't hug. You know what? You've hugged too many times. You're now suspended or you can't go to class for two days. So some real challenges and other People who are incarcerated have talked about that, but they've also shared great stories about guards, teachers, and most people are unaware that a number of states like Georgia and Texas, they actually have a school district totally set aside for young people who are incarcerated but who are going to school. What kind of regulatory barriers are there to providing prisoners with education? It varies by state. So let's take a look at the state of Maryland. In the last few years, they decided that if a person is coming to prison and he or she does not have a high school diploma, you must enroll in a GED program. That wasn't always the case. They began to take a look at the data and thought it made sense to make sure you you know, enrolled and that you completed the program as much as you could, depending on whether or not you had to transfer. So that's one thing. 
In some states, they say, you know what, it's available, but they're not going to make a big push. In terms of real barriers, one is access to the Internet or at times the intranet. There's concerns, understandably, that you don't want to give people access to the Internet who, in fact, could use it to go and find where the prosecutor, the judge, or anyone else involved in his or her incarceration lives. They could send threatening messages through the email or through LinkedIn. So that's a a challenge. It is one, I know from a technological standpoint, you can address, but it's a real one. You also have lack of access to books, uh, hard copy, soft copy books. So you have some programs set aside where nonprofits will collect books that say mean you aren't using any longer. They'll donate it to a library and people will have access to books. Another, frankly, is also financial. So the Pell Grant program, which is discussed in the book, what people often don't know is there's still people who are incarcerated who have to pay for educational services themselves, either through family, through friends, or through donations. I don't take a value judgment of whether it's good or bad, but the idea that there's no cost in prison for people to go to, to school today is just untrue. There's some that are free, but there's others others you have to pay for. All right. So chapter nine of your book discusses an innovation that gets a lot of attention in K-12 policy circles, which is online education. How are these online platforms being leveraged to educate prisoners and what sort of challenges are there to successful implementation of, of those platforms? In one of your comments to my comment, you talked about people who needed to make sure they had opportunities so that when they get out, they can do great things. So I think about a gentleman named Kenyatta. Kenyatta was incarcerated at San Quentin Prison in Northern California. He participated in a program that was sponsored by the Prison University Project. Jody Lewin is the founder and director of that program. She partnered with what was then Patton University in Oakland. I was a member of the Board of Trustees at the time. And we invested money into the program so that the guys in San Quentin could actually earn an associate's degree free of charge. Well, Kenyatta was one of our students. He ended up getting out of prison. He connected with a guy in Silicon Valley. They helped to create an organization called The Last Mile. Uh, And it's a program where they're teaching people who were formerly incarcerated how to code. Now, we both know there are a number of people making pretty good salaries who are coders. And so it's, you know, over a year program where you learn how to code. In fact, when you're a coder, guess what? I'm not going to know whether or not you're a felon or not. I'm not going to see you. All I want to know is can you get the job done? So that program has moved from California to other states where they're actually teaching people who are incarcerated how to code. So that's one option. Uh, Second, you have entrepreneurs in California, Georgia, who are actually going inside of prisons and where they have access to the Internet are showing people how to create web-based businesses so that when you leave, you can actually service, you know, the state you're in or the city you're in. So people, both for-profit, non-profit, are taking advantage of this. And one company I think that comes to mind is the American Prison Data Project. Artie Finn is, in fact, one of the principals at that company. And they're in several prisons and I think a few jails across the country. And what they do is they come into your, to your prisoner jails and guess what? We have all the educational material already on this handheld device. It's connected to the internet, internet. We could work it out in a way where they can actually take a handheld device and even bring it back to their cell. Because in some places, another limitation is you only have access to a handheld device or a computer in a room. Once it closes, you have no access. You've got to see it's a B Corp, and she's doing some great work. 
So the entrepreneurs, even like in education, a lot of the entrepreneurs are coming in and showing us, hey, here's how to think differently about the delivery of teaching and learning. I see the same thing inside prisons. Now, the authors in your book make a number of different policy suggestions to enhance education in prisons. Beyond the ones we've discussed already, are there any in particular that you believe show a great deal of promise? When President Trump signed into law the First Step Act, there was one line in there that talked about academic programs. And so the fact that there's at least a federal approach, it's only for people who are in federal prisons, that was at least a nod that we should take a look at the What Works literature, which a number of people are looking at, to figure out what programs are in place for adult basic education. And that's really what the name says, adult basic education, adult secondary education that's more toward high school. You have workforce and career development that leads to certificates, licensure, and other training for jobs. And then you have post-secondary education, which either could be an associate's degree, baccalaureate, or higher. So the fact that there was a focus on that, I think, was a step in the right direction. Another policy recommendation is to make sure that the prisons are working closely with employers. And so you take, for example, uh, SHRM, the Society for Higher Resource Managers. They have over 300,000 members across the world. And these are the people, frankly, at HR divisions in Fortune 500 companies and in small businesses who are the gatekeepers. You know, these are the ones who are going to say, are we going to bring you in or not? And so they are starting to partner with prisons and with governors and with chambers of commerce. And they're saying, you know what, we're going to sign a pledge and we're going to make it a point that we're going to make sure we give people who are incarcerated a really good look. And so you've got, you know, Fortune 500 corporations who are doing that. Another policy recommendation is called ban the box. And that's where on page one, there's a question, did you create a felony? You check the box and you say yes. Well, historically, that's been a pretty strong nod for HR directors to say, you know what, let me just put this in a different file. Well, some people are saying eliminate it totally. Some are saying move it maybe to page five of the application. Others say make an offer and then bring up that question. So there's some diverse opinions about what we should do there, but there's a lot of traction there. And what people also maybe often overlook is that state universities, in fact, have a box on whether or not you have a felony. So one recommendation that turned into law in the state of Louisiana is that the state universities there, in fact, ban that question. So those are some of the recommendations, workforce, education-related. Some were given a nod by the First Step Act, and some are taking place at the local level. Now, the forward to your book is co-authored by a seemingly unlikely duo. You've got Former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, who is uh, known to be in the conservative wing of the Republican Party, and his co-author is Van Jones, who was a former special advisor to President Barack Obama. He's in the nonprofit world. He's also on, uh, a regular on CNN, and he's known to be on the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. So is this a one-off, or does it single a broader bipartisan interest in making progress on this issue? It's the latter. It signals a broader bipartisan push on this issue to say that it's more than just smoke and mirrors, that it's real. And in many ways, it may be one of only three policy issues where we have this kind of what I would call policy kumbaya. So take Van Jones. Van Jones and I co-authored a piece for CNN. It's online magazine, or I should say paper. 
And it was called, you know, the importance of education for people who are incarcerated. And so as someone who works as a fellow for the American Enterprise Institute, I've worked for two Republican governors. Someone would say, interesting, you and Van are connecting. I said, well, what's interesting is the fact that you find it interesting. Now think about it. Van and I both believe in opportunity. We both believe that people need second chances, and we believe that education matters. On this one issue, we're going to hold hands because we think it makes sense. And then I talked to Speaker Gingrich. He was someone who believes that we should have a different conservative approach to delivering justice and rehabilitation in prison. He believes education matters. He, for example, is a big supporter of the Pell Grant for those who are incarcerated, but he believes that education in different forms uh, should be a part of the equation. Speaker and I co-authored a piece that appeared in Newsweek titled, I believe it was Literacy and Liberation or something very close to that, where we talked about it's going to be very tough to have a strong economy if people aren't literate. And that's just more than reading. That's the ability to comprehend and transfer ideas across space and time. So I went to both of them. We talked about the book. They know each other. And they said, yes, we would be more than willing to co-author a forward for your book. Did they all, did both of them co-stamp on every single idea and policy recommendation? Absolutely not. But the point isn't that. It's not for looking for unanimity as much as us getting together and say, can on this one issue, can we find common ground and talk shop? And I think that's what this book represents. In education policy circles, there's a lot of talk about the preschool to prison pipeline. And clearly, educating prisoners is beneficial, but preventing them from committing crimes and going to prison in the first place is is clearly better. So what concrete steps can policymakers take to reduce the likelihood that a child will end up in prison at all? I'll take a page from the work that Governor Jeb Bush did when he was in Florida. So he helped to institute the third grade holdback policy. And if you don't reach a certain metric by the end of third grade, you are given an opportunity to go to a summer school program to build your skills. A number of the students who go through that, in fact, pass out and are able to move to the fourth fourth grade. But some of those students are, in fact, kept in the third grade. There was a, uh, a scholar who would follow the program. In fact, Marcus Winters conducted research on the subject, follow some of those students, and identify that by the time those students reached the eighth grade, they were added sometimes above their peers they used to be with. And so at least the numbers are pointing in the right direction. When 70% of the American high school students drop out in grade 10, 70%, that's not because all of a sudden people said, you know what, 10th grade makes sense for me to drop out. It's because by 10th grade, your math and English-related literacy skills that's where they're going to find themselves challenged in a real way. And you can't fake it to make it at that point. But that wasn't a 10th grade problem. That was a middle school problem. But frankly, that's not a middle school problem. That's an elementary school problem. So I think we should make sure that we work with students in third grade. Let's go back to preschool and kindergarten. You have places like Virginia, which will support preschool programs and kindergarten programs, really more kindergarten for those who are low income. You've got states like Georgia, which has got a strong push. So I'm a believer that we should support preschool programs. I understand from a conservative perspective that may lead some to say that's nanny gate and more bureaucracy, that we're taking the role away from parents, giving it to the state, that we're not holding parents accountable. I think those are all legitimate points. But when I talk to business people 
who said they're now investing through their foundation's money into preschool programs because they see that as early workforce development. I think we're finding people in employment, in government, business, and education who are coming together to say it makes sense. So we'll have to see 10 years from, I guess, if they're in preschool now, we'll have to see 20 years from now of whether or not the kids who are in preschool today in fact find themselves going to prison compared to those who are not. I think it'll be mixed because there's some variables that are in place that may have led these kids going to prison anyway. But I'm willing to at least say let's experiment, bring in some good researchers, and let's follow the process. On the question of research, too, we've actually seen a number of studies recently that show that school choice programs are reducing the likelihood that somebody goes to prison. Corey DeAngelis and Patrick Wolf, for example, had some research out of Milwaukee showing that students were about, I think it was about half as likely to end up in prison as peers of a similar demographic background who did not go. So actually it was about half was drug-related convictions, and it was about an 85% reduction in property damage convictions and almost 40% reduction in uh, paternity disputes. So very clear, large effects when students are participating in school choice programs. I was excited to see Corey and Pat, both who we know, get involved in this work. You know, Corey's at Cato, Pat's at the uh, University of Arkansas, and then the uh, Department of uh, School Reform. But why it's important for those two scholars to be involved is because there's always been an undercurrent in our school choice movement of how do we work with the kids who even fall outside of our network of how what we can do to help. If kids come to our school, that's great, but it's not as if we always follow the kids who left, and some of them left because they were incarcerated. And so their research, again, is pointing in the direction uh, that is making a difference. I uh, look forward for more of those of scholars of that ilk who are involved in research to take a look, but also find out where we have holes, maybe where some of the methodology or the, or the techniques used aren't great. And so much of this falls on implementation. And there's a chapter in our book, called Reentry Programs, Evaluation Methods, and the Importance of Fidelity, written by Nancy Levine, who's at Urban Institute. And so much of this work, and you know as a former lawmaker, writing it up is great, researching it is great, but how we implement it is how researchers and lawmakers should take a look. And so I think this is rich territory for more scholars in the school and parental choice area. So before we close, do you have anything else that you think that our listeners should know about education in the prison system? With the second chance pill still in experimental phase, it was signed into law. When I signed the law, started as an experiment uh, 2015-16 under President Obama. It's something that's still promoted by President Trump. Uh, Secretary Betsy DeVos, she's supporting it. But you have a lot of Democrat governors and state chiefs who are supporting it as well. I would tell uh, anyone in, uh, in any state to do really three things. Number one, find out whether or not your state prisons require people who arrive without a high school diploma to enroll him or her into a GED program. Number two, go to school board meetings. You know, there's always conversations about the school-to-prison pipeline, and I think one of the things we can do before we get too many adults involved in our criminal justice system is to work with the children that we have right now to address the school-to-prison pipeline, and a lot of those conversations take place at the school board level. Third is to not only read my book, but there are a lot of great books, journal articles, both peer-reviewed and otherwise, and white papers. 
better on the internet. And so I would go to sites or places that you trust, and then places you know maybe where you wouldn't go and look, because this is a really important topic. And I would just say there's some good information both left, right, and middle that's out there, and we should read all that we can. Our guest today has been Gerard Robinson, Executive Director of the Center for Advancing Opportunity. He is the editor with Elizabeth English Smith of the book Education for Liberation, The Politics of Promise and Reform Inside and Beyond America's Prisons. Gerard, thank you for joining us. Jason, thank you for interviewing me, but also thank you for your years of research in leading in the area of policy and research as it relates to parole choice. Thank you. This has been another edition of EdChoice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors you'd like us to interview for the Big Idea series, please send them to media at edchoice.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media at EdChoice and don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time.